Welcome to the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé, a health and science reporter. Join me as we cover advancements being made in health informatics and explainable AI for students, researchers, and healthcare practitioners interested in applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. Headed by Ahmed Tafdi, Pitt's Hex AI Lab cultivates extramural collaborations with academic institutions both nationally and internationally through its research, educational contributions, and this podcast series. Hello and welcome back to Pit Hex AI, a podcast series produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory. I'm Jordan Gospore, your host. Today we're going to speak with Morgan Cheatham, who is a vice president at Bessemer Venture Partners, where he focuses on investments in healthcare and life sciences. We're going to learn more about Morgan's work and his interests in companies leveraging unique data sets and computational methods. Welcome, Morgan. To get us started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Bessemer and your role at the firm? Absolutely. And first, just wanted to start by saying thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of what you're doing on the podcast, and so it's an, an honor to be here today. So as you mentioned, my name's Morgan. I work with a venture firm called Bessemer Venture Partners out of our New York office, where I lead investments at the intersection of computation and biomedicine. This was not what I imagined I'd be doing at this point in my life, or frankly, ever when I first got started. So by way of background, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., and from a very young age, remember wanting to so desperately become a physician. And um, I had a number of experiences growing up, you know, shadowing in the Georgetown systems and getting clinical exposure at a young age that very much affirmed that this would be my contribution to the world. And it was through some of those experiences that I actually first saw how technology was going to transform the field of medicine. When I was 15, I saw my first ever implementation of EPIC, which is the leading medical record system for the country. And I was perplexed as to how a piece of technology, something that I loved and embraced growing up as a kid, was causing so much hassle and headache and burden in the medical system. And I was fascinated from that point on. So in that spirit of, of trying to become a physician efficiently, I went to Brown, where there's a joint BSMD program so I was able to get into college and know that I was going to eventually become a doctor, but that I had four years to explore all of the other areas and interests that I thought I might enjoy. And for me, tying back to those experiences in high school was very much computer science, applied math, and ultimately what we've all now you know, talk about as, as AI. I had a number of experiences in college working primarily in industry as a data scientist, and at one point also jumped to the other side of the table on the finance side to understand how the ecosystem and industry was capitalized. And from then on, I'd honestly seen too much. And I made the decision to actually jump into venture capital right after undergrad to get this bird's eye view of the healthcare and life sciences industries. And I did that with the intention of only taking a two-year deferral. I really enjoyed the work that two years became four. And then finally, during the pandemic, I sat back and reflected on the path that I had been on and the things that I wanted to do in my life. And I decided to go back to medical school at the age of 26, which for some is, is a little bit later in the game, for some is, is early in the game. And so now as I join you today, I'm a third year medical student. I'm calling you actually from the hospital today. I'm on a, a hematology and oncology rotation. And I'm kind of straddling these two worlds of, of investing in the leading edge of medicine while immersing myself in the reality of the present. 
No, that's fantastic. One thing that just pops to mind is that when we talk about venture capital, I think a lot of people have or they think they understand what venture capital actually means. But what does venture capital actually mean specifically in the context of the healthcare industry? Yeah, so venture capital is an asset class. So it's a financial instrument that can be used to invest in various projects, initiatives. Uh, In our case, it's typically companies. And it's one of many types of, of capital that exists. There's obviously private equity, which is a different kind of capital that invests in in, in private businesses. And then there's you know capital that invests in public businesses. So I like to think of it on that spectrum. Um, venture is really characterized, though, as, as a risky asset class, as an asset class that has historically invested in kind of unimaginable scientific breakthroughs or technologies that have the potential to fundamentally change the world. And as a result, it's not an asset class that's been you know, really available to your average everyday investor, but one that has to be kind of appreciated for the risk profile that it embodies. And so when we think about that in healthcare and life sciences, you know, we're investing at Bessemer really across the spectrum, everything from care delivery companies. So companies that are actually involved in seeing patients and taking care of those patients over time to diagnostics platforms, to actual therapeutics. So investing in companies that are discovering and developing new drugs and ideally bringing those to the clinic, and then software. So companies that are selling largely to enterprises in the life sciences and healthcare ecosystems. So think software companies that sell to hospitals, pharma companies, biotech companies, health plans, uh, in some cases, employers. And a lot of those software companies in today's day and age are now incorporating what I think we're here to talk about today, different types and facets of, of artificial intelligence and related capabilities. Yeah, definitely. So speaking of artificial intelligence, can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing that's really exciting from your insider perspective? Like where does artificial intelligence sort of fit into the healthcare industry first off? So like your team doing VC funding that like what are you looking to invest in? What has been some of the most cutting edge technologies that you've seen so far? Taking a step back, I mean, artificial intelligence in medicine is not a novel concept by any means. I mean, some of the first kind of expert uh, medical informatic systems were, were developed in the 50s and 60s, right? And we've we've built upon them. And there's you know great work coming out of you know a number of institutions in in Boston uh, in the 70s around clinical informatic systems and, and and embedding intelligence into those. So so I want to start by saying, uh, even though we're starting to see AI in healthcare and medicine hitting you know, more recently, the, you know, the front page of the New York Times, it's not a novel concept and folks have been working on it for a long time. So in some ways it feels like, you know, an overnight success that was really 50 plus years, uh, 70 plus years in the making. You know, what we're looking for at Bessemer are, you know, first and foremost, companies that are solving problems, regardless of whether they're leveraging AI or not. It turns out that we're finding really dating back to, you know, 2017 transformer architecture coming online, this transition of capabilities in AI from being able to predict. So a classic example would be, what is the likelihood that this patient has this disease based on the data that's available to now an ability to generate, right? And this whole notion of generative AI. So an example could be synthesize 10,000 molecules that sample from this biochemical space that have a high likelihood of being able to bind this target which we think is related to this person's disease. See how that kind of transition kind of fundamentally unlocks new opportunities. So um, from a venture perspective, we're curious at how this transition in capability allows us to solve existing problems in healthcare or those that we foresee 
becoming a greater issue. So that's kind of the first thing that we're looking for. I would say, you know, related to that is really in the team. And the reason why I'm not talking about just the technology is because at the earliest stages of a startup, the things that matter most, frankly, are what are you working on? What are you getting up every day to focus on for the next 5, 10, in some cases, 15 plus years? And, and who is doing it, right? So who's on the team? And these AI companies in biomedicine, they're not monolithic team builds, right? Like it's, it's essential to have clinicians working with AI researchers, working with seasoned healthcare operators uh, and life sciences operators, working with scientists all under one roof, which I think we can all appreciate is not the historical way that we approach company building in the industry. So those are two of the important um, facets that we look for. I have a, a much longer list, but I want to highlight those and maybe offer you an example in our portfolio. So born actually right out of Pittsburgh, I'm a really proud investor in a company called Abridge. And Abridge is founded by a cardiologist. His name is Dr. Shiv Rao. And he teamed up with a leading AI research scientist named Dr. Zachary Lipton. And together what they're building, they're focusing on clinician burnout, which we can appreciate is on almost every headline that we see in the news today about the healthcare system and is certainly a top priority for most health system executives in the US. And what they've done is they've built technology that allows clinicians to ambiently generate clinical documentation for uh, the patients that they're seeing and the conversations they're having with those patients. So the company was built on this fundamental premise that the most sacred point in the healthcare and life sciences ecosystem is that conversation between a, a physician and their patient. That's really the genesis of where you know, diagnosis happens, where decisions are made, where understanding and empathy occurs. And how do we more effectively capture that in ways that doesn't burden the clinician? So they're not going home and spending hours and hours documenting those interactions for obvious medical legal reasons, as well as the downstream billing products that are generated from that documentation. So a bridge is capturing those conversations ambiently. It's transcribing them into appropriate medical documentation, and it's allowing doctors to streamline that workflow so that they can focus on listening actively to what the patient's saying versus maybe some of us have experienced, you know, typing everything in the, in the computer as fast as you're saying. it. So that's a great example of a company, again, just to tie out the, the question that is focused on a hair on fire problem for the industry and is, is leveraging a multidisciplinary, multilingual team to tackle that problem using AI. And a bridge is already being implemented, or this is something that's still in sort of the beta phase? I used a bridge seven times this morning. So the company is live. They just announced a national partnership with Epic, so that the leading medical record company in the U.S., and are rapidly distributing their technology to as many clinicians as they can to help tackle this burnout issue head on. Okay, fantastic. And I do I do want to take a step back and be able to provide a definition to our audience because I also think this might be something that folks maybe aren't aware of this term or have a different idea about it. But what exactly is computational healthcare? Computational healthcare, for me, I would define it as it's products, technologies, companies that are marrying large corpuses of data, typically multimodal data. So it could include data from the electronic medical record, maybe imaging data, maybe data about social and structural determinants of health, perhaps molecular data, and are applying algorithms to that data to generate novel insights, importantly, insights that are actionable for the system. So not just information that we can generate for the sake of generating it, 
but information that informs a decision or unlocks an understanding of a patient's health diagnosis or condition. And so a bridge, and correct me if I'm wrong, a bridge would be an example of computational healthcare. Certainly. You know, we're using large language models in the back end on a lot of the work that we do to take that conversation. It could be a 10-minute check-in with a doctor, or it could be an hour-long, you know, initial visit with, with a new physician and not only transcribe that conversation from audio to text, but then to summarize the conversation to structured in ways that are required by the electronic medical record. So a simple example would be, I'm conducting a physical exam on a patient and I notice that they have some swelling in their legs. Well, in a physician's note, it's important to document that they have swelling in their legs, but that information doesn't just go anywhere in the note. It goes in oftentimes the initial section called the history of present illness. And it goes later in the note in a section called the physical exam. And even later in the note, it'll go in another section, most likely called the assessment. And so using a Bridges technology, they're able to structure the information that's captured in each of these key components of the medical note and make sure the right information is articulated in the right ways and in the right places. Fantastic. How do you see artificial intelligence playing a role in the healthcare industry? So when we think about AI in, in healthcare and life sciences broadly, we've at Bessemer historically divided it into two camps. There's you know, the back office opportunities and the front office opportunities. And the back office opportunities are really thinking about how we can streamline and automate and with generative technology, reimagine the business of healthcare, the operations of healthcare, the guts of it, you know, things like administrative tasks, billing, coding, uh, the broader revenue cycle management category. That's one side. The other side, the front office, is really involved in the delivery of care. So everything from, again, that physician-patient conversation I just described with the bridge to thinking about the leading edge of care in terms of diagnostics and, and ultimately novel therapeutics. And that's how we see the front office. There's been significant interest in tackling the back office to start, one, because it's ultimately lower stakes in the front office, right? It's not necessarily involved in, in provisioning care to a patient, but rather how that care gets provisioned. And so um, these kinds of tasks are, are effectively lower stakes. If you make a mistake in terms of how you categorize a, an ICD-10 code for billing purposes, it's not ideally, you know, it's not going to impact someone's life. It might impact the bill they receive, but it's not a life or death mistake. Whereas, you know, mistakes that we make on the front lines, misdiagnosis, for example, um, misrepresenting something that a patient has said, I mean, these are serious and could be potentially grave mistakes. And so we've seen a lot of focus in the back office and have made a number of investments in that area. Over time, it's inevitable that these front office, office applications come to life. And if we are good students of history and healthcare broadly, I think that it's going to require a much more mature regulatory environment for a lot of the front office applications to see the light of day. A very simple example would be there's an explosion of what I describe as computational biomarkers, right? This notion that we can use all of the data that's sitting in systems that characterize patients. We talked about molecular data, omics data, imaging, clinical, EHR. How do we combine all of that and use it to more effectively phenotype and describe disease? Well, researchers are doing that. And every single day of the week that ends in Y, there's a new preprint that's hitting a server that says, hey, we've just learned how to better characterize rheumatoid arthritis or another kind of autoimmune disease that we haven't been able to characterize with great precision before. But that work isn't necessarily hitting the clinic as fast as I'd like it to. 
And I think that part of the reason is that we need to create incentive structures and also safe guardrails for that work to be ingestible by the EHR and then applied by physicians. And so what does that look like in practice? I think a prediction I would have is that over the next few months, the government is going to make more statements about safety uh, and ethics in AI and biomedicine. And I think there's a, there's got to be an ongoing discourse. It can't be you know one didactic memorandum and then nothing else. Like this is an ongoing conversation with, with the medical community. So that's on, on the regulatory side. And then I think the incentive structure for physicians has to change. So oftentimes that comes in the form of you know, reimbursement for certain activities. So being able to bill for using these computational biomarkers. And right now I'm tracking some interesting legislation that's been proposed on that front broadly. So, so that's kind of how I, I'd see things playing out over the next few few months to years. No, that's great. So can we talk more about defensibility? And also too, wanting just to, to clarify about like, what is defensibility? It's a challenging question to answer because this is a field that's moving at such a rapid clip day by day. I mean, as I mentioned, there's new papers dropping every day showing better and better performance on a number of different tasks that we utilize to benchmark large language models, for example. And, you know, I think as a person who is investing in startups, you're asking the right right question, especially as someone who's spending every day thinking about where there are opportunities for new entrants in the space. What I can tell you is in business generally, distribution advantages are essential. And it's sometimes more challenging for startups to find those. If you think about an early stage company selling against the sales force of a trillion dollar market cap uh, technology business, that's not necessarily a fight they're going to win most of the time. Um, so, so then we go back to this question of, well, what's fundamentally defensible about AI products? And I'd be the first to say that I think most of the moats that companies claim to have are fleeting at best. So when we hear that companies are performing better on a particular benchmark, that statement is only true for the 30 minutes we might be on that call. This field is moving at such a rapid clip that I'm not personally only investing in companies because they have an algorithm that's you know performing at soda, you know, a state-of-the-art uh, performance for a particular period of time. So what are we looking for? I will say that so far, as a student of this industry, I've had incredible success working lockstep in collaboration with leading AI labs and better understanding what kinds of experiments they're running internally that may generate data that's not replicable in the wild. I will explain. We're investors in a company called Subtle Medical that uses deep learning to accelerate medical imaging exams. So for listeners, if you've ever had an MRI, you might remember sitting in that scanner for 60 to 90 minutes. It can feel very claustrophobic. Some folks may have had imaging done with contrast dye. You know, imaging is not the most comfortable experience for patients today. And what Subtle Medical does is they take very short imaging exams. So let's say a 15-minute MRI. And they use deep learning to denoise the images that they generate from those exams. So you can imagine in 15 minutes, your image might be a little bit fuzzy, or you may not have gotten all of the different slices that you wanted. Um, But they're using the deep learning to enhance that image to what a radiologist would consider clinical diagnostic quality imaging. Now, when we evaluated the company, one thing that really excited us about Subtle, if we all believe that data is the oil for artificial intelligence, that it's not commonplace in medicine to take 15-minute low-resolution MRI images. I mean, there's like not a lot of utility to do that in diagnostic workflows today. We want to take an image that's pristine, that is clear, readable, and can be interpreted at the point of care to make a diagnostic 
decision or to infer something with diagnostic relevance. And so when we sat there and thought about their technology mode, we said, well, they have millions of these kind of lower resolution images that they can train their models on to be able to you know, create this system that accelerates the imaging acquisition workflow. And we felt like even though it may not be a permanent moat, it was at least a substantive initial moat that allowed the company to kind of protect the category and build best in class products. And you know, the, the proof's been in the pudding. The company has now received both FDA clearance as well as CE mark, and they're deployed around the world in the US, in Brazil, throughout Europe, as well as China. And so we're very excited about what they're doing. And I think it was that fundamental initial insight that there are experiments that research labs run that don't get run in the wild. And the derivative data from those projects and, and those questions that they ask could serve as moats for initial AI platforms that could ultimately you know, get that distribution advantage I talked about over time. Fantastic. Do you have any advice on the ways that university labs can collaborate with the private sector and the investors uh, to elaborate on what you just spoke on? Absolutely. This is an initiative I'm, I'm currently working on on behalf of Bessemer. And I think there's a well-trodden playbook of, of what's happened in the biotech world, right? The, the tight collaboration between uh, leading you know, bio research labs and venture capital has been an enduring component of how we ultimately identify promising therapeutic opportunities and bring them to the clinic. And, and I'm a firm believer that there's lessons to be learned from the decades of, of that collaboration and to apply that to academic AI labs. You know, I think the first thing is to just appreciate that you know, venture capitalists are not looking necessarily, if they're early stage investors, for a perfectly baked product and business plan, right? We are looking for uh, green shoots of opportunity that show potential for, you know, 10, 20, 100x improvements in how a particular industry, in my case, the biomedical industry, imagines, performs a particular task, right? And so um, oftentimes it's the ideas that, you know, labs may have shelved or they might think you know, it's too wonky for a grant that can, can ultimately be really, really interesting um, for a company. So, th so that's kind of the first thing is to get in touch early and to get in touch often and start to build those relationships. The second thing I would say is to not focus too much on the business aspects, right? The investors themselves are, the, are going to be the experts in this relative dynamic on how this technology could ultimately be commercialized. And I think sometimes I, I meet with um, scientific co-founders or folks at AI, AI labs that think they have to do it all. They have to be the, the chief scientific officer of the company. They also have to be the chief executive officer. They also have to, you know, be the janitor for the lab. I mean, like they're doing it all. And, and that's simply, um, that's, that's simply too much for one person's plate. So I would also encourage them to think about how they can, if they are an academic lab with an industry focus, really start to bring people around them. It could be industry collaborators. It could be venture firms. It could be fellows that maybe bring some of that, you know, that business expertise to the table so that they're not burdened with you know, the scientific uh, investigation as well as uh, the business development initiatives. So, so that would be another. I think generally, there's just not enough conversation happening between AI labs that aren't necessarily on the coast. I think that a lot of the top AI labs that you see in the news are, are getting you know, most of the interest, right? And I won't name names, but we can imagine which labs those are. And those labs do fantastic work that's changed the world for, for many already. But I think there's this you know, entire cohort of labs that are also doing phenomenal work that aren't necessarily soliciting the interest of venture capital. And it's not for a lack of great ideas, great scientific inquiry. It's really, frankly, I think, a, a marketing challenge and a, and a relationship building challenge. 
And so what we've begun to do at Bessemer, I can speak to some of those initiatives, is we've started going to a lot of the academic AI conferences. So we attended ICML this year. We attended NeurIPS last year. We'll be hosting events at NeurIPS again later this year to really informally get to know AI researchers in the same ways that we host happy hours and get to know TechBound. And I'm hoping that this ecosystem will continue to flourish. I, I think it has to if we're going to build enduring, you know, defensible and, and impactful AI products in our industry. Exactly. So before we close, we like to ask all of our guests to offer students who are interested in health informatics a research project idea. What's something that you'd love to see students work on, specifically in the explainability realm? Yeah, so, so one area where I'd love to see students dig in is in the realm of validation, which is, from my view, tightly coupled and, and related to explainability. So the reason I say validation is because as we think about the new technologies that have come online, we've talked about this transition from prediction to generation. We haven't yet built the right heuristics for validating the skill sets of these models across various tasks. And part of the challenge is that the design of these models is such that they should be, and we want them to be adept at many tasks, at thousands of tasks, at whatever tasks we throw at them. And so, you know, I was one of the original co-authors on the first paper that showed that ChatGPT could pass the U.S. medical licensing exam, which was a really fun paper to write as someone who had not yet passed the U.S. medical licensing exam. But what I would tell you is that the U.S. medical licensing exam, not only is it a poor you know, indicator for whether someone's going to be an excellent doctor, right? There's a baseline knowledge you need to know, but whether you're going to have good bedside manner, whether you're going to know how to have that empathetic, you know, family conversation with a patient who's ill, that exam doesn't measure that. And so in the same way that I think that's like a poor indicator of a human doctor's performance, I think it's also the wrong way to assess the adeptness of these models with medical corpora. And so I'd love to see students think about investing in validation as an interesting area of research. And, you know, Maybe it's not validation as we've historically imagined it. It's, you know, on, on some of the work that I've published also with Dr. Shaw, we thought about validation from this framework of let's have expert human clinicians judge the outputs of these models because that's, that's so available to us, right? This expertise and this talent is available to us. Let's apply it and see what your expert physician would think about this response from ChatGBT. But what happens when you start to say, well, these models are pretty good. And when you pre-train them with certain information, Maybe models could be helping us with this validation question. Maybe, maybe you know, it's this question of like who guards the guards. Maybe LLMs themselves could be constructed to, and there's already work being done here, but there's great opportunity to provide insights about how other LLMs are performing. So I'd love to see more students work on that. The, the last thing I'll say on this front is without being too prescriptive with a project, I think the best thing students can do to prepare themselves to do research in AI and biomedicine is to spend time in the real world. What that looks like is volunteering at hospitals, shadowing clinicians, interviewing nurses, talking to pharmacists, right? Maybe if they have to access healthcare, really experiencing that and, and trying to say, well, what about this felt broken? Or what about this felt flawed? And, and where could these technologies flourish? The same thing on the biotech side, reach out. You're, you know, If you have a .edu email, you have more privilege than you know, right? To email professors, ask them to come shadow and ask them questions. I think that level of what we call bottoms-up research is so essential for people who are building uh, products and, and who are doing research in AI. Because as we mentioned, none of this really matters if we're not ultimately solving real problems. I agree completely. All right, Morgan, would you like to leave our listeners who are mostly students, any takeaways or is there anything you'd like to share about some of your companies or events that you're participating in? 
I'll leave with two things. I think the first would be advice I would have given to my younger self. So I really like to champion this notion of being Bayesian. And for the folks listening who are students of computer science and math, maybe this will resonate with you. Um, but you know, thinking about Bayesian statistics, which is this area of statistics where we think about training distributions called priors and sampling from those distributions to understand the probability of a future event. It's, it's a very simple kind of construct. And I've treated my own learning like I am Bayesian. And in doing that, I think, what are the experiences that I can have or the content I can consume, the information diet that I can craft to train those priors in interesting ways such that my distribution isn't skewed in any one direction. It's a normal distribution, but it's one that I'm proud of and one that when I ultimately sample from it, I'm going to feel reassured and confident with the result. And so I just, I say that to say the best advice I ever got was from a graphic design professor who said, consume as much content as you can from as many diverse sources as you can find. And that's served me well. And the only regrets I've had so far in my academic journey has been when I came across something that I thought was interesting and I said, that's interesting, but I left it there. Don't stop there. Email the person who wrote the paper, go to office hours, ask more questions. Because ultimately, if you have a curiosity about something, trust yourself. It's likely that's going to be an interesting area, an interesting category. And you as a student have a front row seat to being the first person or an early person to develop that idea further. The second thing I would say, and this is a little bit more on the Bessemer side, is if you are a researcher, student, faculty, or otherwise, who's listening to this podcast and is interested in figuring out how your lab can contribute to the broader startup ecosystem, either through mentorship or thinking about how you can actually commercialize some of the research that you're doing so that it sees the clinic or sees the lab or sees other real world settings in the biomedical field, reach out. My email is morgan at bvp.com. I'd be more than happy to talk more about that with you and also learn more about your research. That's interesting because that advice that you got, I also got that in journalism school. I see a lot of intersection with the healthcare industry too and medical professionals and journalists as well. And I'd like to see more of that and having these conversations. So yeah, I think that's very interesting. Thank you so much, Morgan, for, for taking the time to speak with me today. I really enjoyed having you on the show. And yeah, just thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks everyone for tuning in and for following the show. The Health Unexplainable AI podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health Unexplainable AI Research Laboratory at University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. I'm Jordan Gospore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>